Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Landides. And once again this week, I am riding solo. Unfortunately, again, schedules just did not work out. And Josh is not available. And so it is just going to be me. Uh, so we're going to get through this together, you and me, the listener. So this is going to be fun. I want to welcome you to the show. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Strikeforce Overeem versus Verdun, which took place on June 18th, 2011 at the American Airlines Arena in Dallas, Texas. The main event would feature a rematch between Strikeforce heavyweight champion, the Demolition Man, Alistair Overeem, and Fabricio Verdun in a quarterfinal bout in the promotion's heavyweight Grand Prix. In the co-main event, which was also a quarterfinal bout, we would see the baby-faced assassin Josh Barnett make his Strikeforce debut against Brett the Grim Rogers. We would also get two uh, two Grand Prix reserve bouts with Chad, Chad the Gravedigger Griggs tangling with Alistair's brother, Valentine Overeem, and Daniel Cormier taking on former UFC heavyweight title challenger Jeff the Snowman Munson. Lastly, we would get a fight with fireworks written all over it in Jorge Masvidal versus KJ Nunes. Did want to quickly mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But as we like to do, we're going to talk about the fallout from the last Strike Force event, the last major one before this. It was Strike Force DS versus Daily. And man, quite an auspicious start to the Zufa era of Strike Force, if you will. Uh, we'd seen the last of Strike Force's welterweight champion Nick Diaz inside the Hexagon as he would move over to the UFC after his scintillating win over Paul Daly. Gilbert Melendez had returned after a year away from the cage to take a dominating TKO win over Tatsuya Kawajiri, spoiling the Japanese star's North American debut. Shinya Aoki had made what would be his final Strike Force appearance, quickly submitting Lyle Fancy Pants Beerbomb, who also wouldn't return to the promotion. And we also got a war that ended in a majority draw between Gegard Musassi and the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine. That is the fight to watch on that card. In my opinion, just overall, Gilbert's win is, is huge, and Nick versus Daly was an awesome one-round fight. So, there, I mean, really, uh, all the fights had, had, had something to offer. I mean, it was good stuff, but I really enjoyed the Musassi-Jardine fight. So, all right, but let's get back to what we're talking about today. There were a bunch of fighters expected to appear on this card that did not. So let's quickly kind of run through them. King Mo was announced to be fighting Ovin St. Pru, but Mike Aframovitz, the, the communications head for Strikeforce, uh, said that that was actually an accident, was never supposed to be announced. Not sure what happened there, but uh, King Mo would end up fighting on a future card. Scott Smith, Hands of Steel, also had said he planned to compete on the card, but he would instead fight Tarek Safadi in the next month at Fedor versus Henderson. Originally, Daniel Cormier was supposed to battle fellow undefeated rising star Shane Del Rosario on this card in a reserve bout. However, Del Rosario had to pull out due to a car accident that he had uh, that he had suffered in early May, and stepping in to replace Del Rosario against DC would be former UFC heavyweight title challenger, the aforementioned Jeff Monson. Apparently, the accident that Del Rosario had been in was pretty bad. His car was totaled by a drunk driver. He suffered a herniated disc in his back, which actually ended his strike force career as he would move over to the UFC the following year. He would not do well there. Uh, and as we've discussed uh, about Shane on a previous episode, he sadly would pass away due to heart issues in 2013. Uh, very, very sad uh, situation that, that had taken place there. There were a lot of contributing factors, uh, including some some opioids and that sort of thing. So unfortunately, uh, Shane really never got back on track and, and really was, he had, he, I believe, lost both his fights in the UFC and suffered some injuries and that sort of thing. So uh, rest in peace, Mr. Del Rosario. 
And many may not remember this, but Amanda Nunez, who is considered by most, if not the greatest female fighter of all time uh, at this point, you know, she's the second, even though she beat Chris Cyborg, who many would consider the first. I, I mean, you kind of have to say that Nunez is uh, the greatest female fighter in, in history. She had two fights uh, in Strike Force, actually, early in her career. Um, she was scheduled to fight Julie Kedzie on this card. But she suffered a hairline fracture in her foot, and that forced her to, to step away from the bout, unfortunately. And then finally, Gina Carano was not only scheduled to be on this card, but she was actually on the fight poster. This was, you know, this was signed, sealed, delivered. She was going to be fighting Sarah D'Alelio. However, while she was medically approved by the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation, Carano had some sort of medical issue and her doctors uh, decided that it would be best for her not to fight. And so she pulled out on the, the advice of her own doctors and not kind of shrouded in mystery a bit, not a lot of information out there on it, but we would not see Carano. And uh, as I believe you probably know, we never actually saw Carano fight again. She, after the 2009 loss in August of that year to Chris Cyborg, there were rumors of her coming back to strike force. Again, she was signed and was going to come back uh, on this card. And then, you know, later, she was actually supposed to fight Ronda Rousey in the UFC and things with Dana White didn't 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 work out so well and so Carano never fought again it's hard to believe but as of this recording it's been uh you know uh, 12 years since she fought and obviously at 38 she's you know she's done she's an actress now but uh she came oh so close to coming back at least one more time and it just didn't end up happening all right, let's get to the fight itself. Let's get to the event uh, itself. As mentioned earlier, Strike Force Overeem versus Verdun took place on June 18, 2011, at the American Airlines Arena in Dallas, Texas. There were 7,639 fans in attendance, drawing a total gate of $543,060. It was broadcasted on Showtime, and the event drew 624,000 average viewers with a peak of 719,000 fans and once again on the call we would get gus johnson alongside mar Ranallo and frank shamrock i did want to mention during the the broadcast they for some reason kept showing you know pockets of the arena where there were a pretty you know pretty there were a lot of empty seats basically so kind of interesting that they they kept showing that and uh you know knowing that zufa was behind it didn't seem to really do much good as far as drawing more fans i mean obviously most promotions out there would love besides the ufc and bellator um would, would love to have 7600 fans in attendance today but you know, obviously, when the UFC is drawing double that and, you know, in, in some cases, well, well, well more than that, you know, this this didn't bode well for them long term once again. All right, let's get to the undercard. Isaac Valley flag defeated Brian, Brian Melancone via split decision at 175 pounds at another catchweight bout 180 pounds. Nashawn Burrell defeated Joe Ray via unanimous decision. 155 pounds, we saw the return of Connor Hune. He defeated Magno Almedia via unanimous decision. And then at 155 pounds in a bout that was seen as having, uh, you know, a big, uh, planned to have a big impact on the lightweight division, Jay-Z Cavalcante versus Justin Wilcox ended in a very unfortunate no contest due to an accidental eye poke that was suffered by Wilcox. Uh, Jay-Z was asked about this. And he said he actually, it was in the second round, he felt like he was losing the fight, actually. Didn't feel like he was doing all that great, but he did feel like he was coming on strong and then just accidentally punk, poked Wilcox in, the, Wilcox in the eye, excuse me, and Wilcox was... I uh, was unable to continue that. So that was the end of that. We also had a rare post main card bout. Mike Bronsoulis defeated Todd Moore via unanimous decision. That again took place after the main card, which was at this point that we'd seen that a fair amount early on in strike force. And this was the first time I want to say in years at this point that, that, that we saw that. So, so kind of interesting there. 
But let's get to the main card. So the opening bout, heavyweight bout, this is again was a, a reserve bout. The winner would, would be an option to step in just in case one of the other comp- competitors got injured and couldn't appear uh, for one reason or another. And this was Chad Griggs taking on Valentine Overeem. Griggs was 10-1 and coming in with nine knockouts and was undefeated at 5-0 and in his last five bouts. This included wins over Bobby Lashley and John Volante. Uh, which you know, as for the for that fire for the firefighter that uh, Griggs was a firefighter, this was uh, you know this was a, a a big step in up in terms of experience. Both Lashley and Volante were fairly early in, early in their careers, uh, and Valentine Overeem, I mean, extremely experienced at twenty nine and twenty five coming in. He had wins over Randy Couture and Babalu Sabral early on in in his. Uh, his MMA efforts, and he was 20, 28 of his twenty nine wins had come via stoppage. So he was a finishing machine uh, when he when he would win. He usually won by finish. Definitely somebody to keep an eye on. Overeem had won three straight, which included a neck crank submission victory over Ray Sefo in his Strike Force debut. So uh, this this promised to be a, a um, you know hopefully a, a, a I say promise, but hopefully this would be a, a pretty entertaining fight early on. Overeem grabbed, grabbed a clinch. Griggs was able to turn and fall to the mat, rolling through, twisting his body, and ending up in top position. It was really actually pretty smooth, kind of a, uh, a judo-type move, and, and I enjoyed seeing that. The Python did a nice job of tying Griggs up for a while, but eventually the Gravedigger was able to free himself and started dropping some heavy shots from the top, which forced Overeem to tap out, which moved Griggs to 3-0 and in strike force. And interestingly, at first the, amount, the announcers seemed to miss the tap out, and Morrow said, you know, uh, he was about ready to complain about a quick stoppage and, and was just ready to rip into the ref. Uh, but then on replay, saw the, the tap out and changed his tune immediately uh, to his credit. So Chad, Craig, Chad Griggs defeated Valentine Overeem via submission, coming by way of strikes at 208 of the first round. It was actually uh, announced as a TKO, but was recorded, fortunately, as a submission because that, that's actually what it was. So then cage side, they showed former Dallas Cowboys stars Herschel Walker and Michael Irvin as well as Strikeforce competitors Misha Tate and Bigfoot Silva. Uh, but as far as these two, this would actually be it for both of these guys in Strikeforce. Griggs would move over to the UFC the following year and compete twice. He got submitted at heavyweight by Travis Brown before moving down to light heavyweight, got tapped out by Cyril Diabate, and that ended his career at 11-3. and three. Kind of interesting that he would uh, – you know, have, have such a healthy career record and had some big wins on his, his tally, and, and then but that would be it. Overeem would continue to compete until 2014, winning only one more fight, retiring with a record of 33 and 35. All of those fights after this Strike Force fight, all those fights came outside of the U.S. And judging by a couple of the fight posters I saw, I have a feeling that uh, that may have had something to do with drug testing. Uh, he, he was a, a big, beefy boy for sure. All right, 265 pounds heavyweight bout. The other reserve bout, Daniel Cormier versus Jeff Munson, as with the Griggs Overeem bout. Again, the winner of this fight would potentially come into play as a replacement if one of the other competitors couldn't go on uh, a later fight card. Jeff the Snowman Monson was 42-11 and 11 with 26 submission victories, and he was on an eight-fight win streak. He was a former Abu Dhabi submission wrestling champion. This guy... Uh, Munson was was a serious threat. I mean, he was a guy, if he got you to the ground, big, uh, you know, he was only 5'9", but, man, he was just thick, just powerful guy, longtime veteran of the sport. He had made his MMA debut all the way back in 1997, and after a three-fight three win streak 
in the UFC had challenged Tim Sylvia for the UFC heavyweight title at UFC 65 in Sacramento in 2006. I was there for that. Uh, actually, I was not involved with MMA at that time. I had just become a, a, a much a, a big fan. And I remember that Munson, uh, Munson came out to the cage to the strains of Imagine from John Lennon, which really stood out to me. I didn't know anything about him at all. But I was used to hearing, you know, Rage Against the Machine and Death Metal and you know, maybe hardcore hip hop or that sort of thing. So to hear, uh, you know, basically, you know, the, the piano of Imagine by John Lennon was, it just really stood out to me. But knowing what I know about him now, uh, this, this, you know, didn't actually mean it, 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 it meant something to him. Munson was, he's really one of the most unique personalities in MMA history. He's been labeled as an anarchist, uh, actually got in trouble for spray painting U.S. property, I believe, in 2011. Um, but he he actually rejects that label. He doesn't consider himself to be an anarchist. He's not for eradicating the government. Um, he's just really believes in everybody having an equal share. And and so what he sounds what 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 it describes to me, what it sounds like to me, is really more of socialism mixed with some communism. I, I I've never really d- dived too deep into him. I know that he is a um, uh, he's a, a, a citizen of Russia, and he's very into Russia and. I think he lives there. So, uh, you know, he's 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 a very unique guy. I probably don't agree with a lot of his politics, but very, very interesting guy. Uh, as for DC, he was 7-0 at the time. He was a two-time U.S. Olympic wrestler. He was also undefeated at 4-0 in Strikeforce, and this was his first time competing on the main card of one of Strikeforce's major events. So this was a big opportunity for him. Uh, I did want to mention Munson had some big wins in his career, including victories over Kazuyuki Fujita, the Smashing Machine, Mark Kerr, Rico Rodriguez, Roy Nelson, and Sergey. Heritonov. So this would be a huge test for Daniel Cormier, and we would see how he would do. Cormier seemed pretty intent on showing off his hands in the first round, put together some really nice combinations on the feet. Uh, he did cut Monson on the top of the head with an accidental headbutt, which drew a fair amount of blood. No takedown attempts from either side in that first round. Clear 10-9 Cormier round to open things up. In the second round, we saw more stand-up with Munson opening up and getting out of the pocket in terms of striking. At one point, the snowman slipped after a big swing and was on his back. Somewhat surprisingly, DC didn't follow him down to the mat, although I guess in retrospect that would make sense as that was really Munson's world. Uh, Cormier seemed to be in better shape overall, and that only became more clear as Munson got hit more and more. Definitely 10-9 for, for DC in the second round. Really surprising that there were no takedown attempts from either side heading into the third round. Uh, Cormier opened things up a little bit uh, with a with a really nice couple pair of combinations and even landed a really nice Superman punch that looked like it hurt Munson. Just a really strong performance for DC on the feet, which really showed his growth as an MMA fighter at that stage of his career. Uh, but after getting dropped, Munson shot in for a takedown. DC was able to avoid very nice takedown defense. Cormier then clinched against the cage for a while, and after some nice knees, he turned and sort of hip-tossed Munson to the mat, kind of uh, kind of what we saw with uh, with the Gravedigger and uh, uh, Alistair's brother Valentine in the first fight. Uh, but he just really just seemed to just be really in a good spot physically and mentally, and DC was, was just having his way with the former UFC title challenger. Clean sweep on the scorecards in my mind, 30-27 to 27 for DC, and that was the, the official decision. Daniel Cormier defeated Jeff Munson via unanimous decision. Uh, but I did want to mention, so due to some reshuffling, uh, that we'll discuss on a future episode, Cormier would actually get an opportunity to step in for one of the competitors of the Grand Prix. So we would actually see him back in just a few months. Munson, for his part, was one and done with the promotion. He last competed in MMA in 2016, going out with a win to bring his record to 61-26-2, but he's still competing 
in martial arts, doing grappling tournaments and that sort of thing. And he actually just, as we record this in November of 2021, uh, he just lost a pro boxing bout a few weeks ago. Uh, in, again, no, in, uh, in October of 2021. So pretty amazing that, uh, I believe he's 52 years old and he's still, still competing. So my hat's off to him. All right. At 155 pounds, Jorge Masvidal taking on KJ Nunes. Masvidal came into this one 21 and six on his record, and but he was on an uneven run as he had split his last four bouts. Uh, as for Nunes, after a busy 2010, he had uh, he had broken his hand in his title loss against Nick Diaz the previous year, so he'd taken some time to heal off. Or I'm sorry, he'd taken some time off to heal up. Uh, prior to the Diaz loss, he had won six straight at lightweight, his more natural weight class, so he was definitely in the conversation for a title shot with a win here against Masvidal. All right, once the bell rang, no feeling out process in this one. These two went right at it with Masvidal even trying to uh, trying out that now signature flying knee a few times. After both Masvidal and Nunes had their moments on the feet, Gamebred grabbed a nice takedown. Uh, he wasn't able to do much with it, but once things got back to the feet, Masvidal landed a nice short knee to a ducking Nunes. It cut him pretty good. And then late in the round, Gamebred timed a kick perfectly as Nunes was ducking down to change levels and nailed him flush in the face. Nunes dropped as the crowd roared and Gamebred followed up. Nunes was hurt badly, but it was eight, but he was able to survive to the final bell, although he was now sporting the proverbial crimson mask, probably a 10-8 round for Gamebred. Nunes did seem to be fine to his credit at the beginning of the second round, but you could see that his left eye was swelling. Of course, it didn't take long for his forehead to start bleeding again. And Nunes did, a, did land a nice left uppercut that got a reaction from Masvidal, who reacted a short time later with another really nice takedown, followed up by another one after Nunes was able to stand up. But whew, Nunes' face was an absolute mess. Uh, you could see a large hematoma forming on the right side of his forehead just above his eye. And along with the swelling eye and all the blood, I mean, he just he was in really rough shape. But to his credit, Nunes was the one that was pressing the action. A lot of countering from Masvidal, uh, who was still, you know, despite not being the aggressor, all those counter strikes, uh, they were doing most of the damage, which was evidenced by another killer jumping knee from the Cuban fighter, 10-9 for game bread in the second round. I mean, then, man, that hematoma at the beginning of the third round, it just looked brutal. You, It was really bad. Uh, but Nunes was pressing things more in the third and final round, again, still being very aggressive. And just what a display of toughness on his part. The two continued to trade strikes on the feet with neither getting really any big highlight moments after a fight full of them. And Masvidal got another couple of takedowns as the round wore on. He, he seemed content, content to play it safe and not take risks knowing that he was definitely winning the fight. And this is where things would end. And a great win for Masvidal, who simply beat up KJ Nunes. Lots of respect between the two afterwards. But Gamebred was clearly uh, in, in the running for a title shot. And he was asked on the uh, on the mic in the, in the post-fight interview about this. And he said he wasn't going to call out uh, uh, Gilbert Melendez for a title shot, but he would definitely take one if, uh, if Scott Coker would, would grant it to him. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but both Masvidal and Nunes would ironically be back on the same card in later in the year, December of 2011 with KJ battling a Billy Evangelista who had lost, uh, to Masvidal in his previous strike force bout. And then Masvidal would get that title shot against Gilbert, Gilbert Melendez. So I'm looking forward to covering that. All right, we are at the co-main event, Josh Barnett versus Brett Rogers. 
Barnett was a former UFC heavyweight champion. He was 29-5 and five with seven knockouts and 17 submissions on his record. According to Tamara Ronaldo, he was the only fighter in MMA history to test positive for steroids three times in his career at that point, with one of those tests costing him his newly won UFC heavyweight title at that time. And then another one, he had a main event fight against Fedor Emelianenko and Affliction that was lined up a couple years prior to this, and that had been canceled. And I believe the entire event had been canceled because of his positive steroid test. Uh, still with wins over Dan Severn, Sammy Schilt, Alexander Emelianenko, Mark Hunt, and Rodrigo Noguera. Plus, being on a six-fight win streak, he was a dangerous foe for anyone. And I would like to say, Josh Barnett is is one of my, I don't want to say he's one of my favorite MMA fighters, but uh, he's a heavyweight that I really like. I, I love that he's not a bodybuilder type, but he's just really strong. He always had good cardio. I love catch wrestling, uh, which they talked about during his bout that, you know, kind of just what's the difference between jujitsu and catch wrestling and catch wrestling while jujitsu is, you know, kind of like be like water as, uh, as Bruce Lee would say, uh, in terms of martial arts, you kind of use your opponent's force against them that you, uh, you kind of flow with it, that sort of thing. Catch wrestling is the opposite. Catch wrestling is about uh, imposing your will. It's about being aggressive. You're aggressively going to, for submissions rather than kind of playing the, the mental chess game or the physical chess game and uh, waiting for an opportunity to present itself. So really, really interesting. Uh, Rogers, for his part, was 11-2 and two with nine knockouts and one submission coming in. And after a real strong start to his career that saw him destroy uh, Abongo Humphrey and Andre Arlovsky, the Grimm had fallen on hard times inside the hexagon, losing via punches to Fedor Emelianenko and Alistair Overeem. He did have uh, some moments in the, the Fedor fight, uh, but really none in the Overeem fight. He seemed to be, if anything, regressing uh, as a fighter. And he, he did come back with a win over journeyman and fellow Strikeforce veteran Ruben Warpath Villarreal. But, I mean, he was just facing a whole different animal in Josh Barnett. And during uh, during the, 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 I believe, before the fight started, Mara Ranallo was talking about uh, uh, Grim, the Grim on the uh, on the mic, and he was saying that you know this fight, I guess, had taken place up in Canada, and that he had not looked real good against Warpath. That was a, a very winnable fight that was probably designed to get a win in his, under his belt and get him back on the right track. But apparently, Rogers had not looked good in that fight, and so he, he, you know his his confidence probably wasn't real high coming into this. They made a point of saying that where he trained at in Minnesota, that there were no uh, heavyweights his size. Uh, so, you know, you got to train, you know, Frank Shamrock jumped and said, if you want to be the best, you have to train with the best. And so this was, this didn't really bode well for him coming into this fight. And uh, we'll put it this way. If I was, if I was a betting man and I knew all this going into this bout, I would have bet heavy on Josh, Josh Barnett. But anyways, Barnett, once the bell rang, grabbed Rogers early on, getting his arms around both legs and lifting the grim off the mat and slamming him down. Very nicely done. And then, as is the case with catch wrestling, as I mentioned, he was Barnett was aggressively seeking submissions. Uh, Rogers almost got got out from underneath him, but Barnett was able to get him back and eventually moved to full mountain. From there, Barnett mostly rode Rogers, dropping the occasional strike. Rogers would buck here and there, trying to get Barnett off him, but to no avail. And the big takedown was really the lone highlight in the first round. Ten nine Barnett. The crowd was not really appreciating uh, what they were seeing because uh, Barnett would be in position and Rogers wouldn't really be able to do much. And but Barnett wasn't. Really, you know, he wasn't getting close on submissions or dropping big heavy leather or anything either. At the start of the second round, Rogers looked pretty winded. Just again, did not bode well for him. Uh, he did grab a clinch and push, but Barnett used that momentum and turned and flipped Rogers onto his back, landing in full mount, super smooth. I really that man that kind of popped me. I <laughs> I really enjoyed seeing that. Again, we had already seen this two other times in the other heavyweight bouts with uh, DC and Gravedigger uh, both doing the same thing to their opponents, and both those guys had won. And so we would see very quickly that that would be the case here as here as well as just over a minute in. Barnett 
Barnett saw an opening, grabbed onto an arm triangle choke, and Rogers, you could see him panic, and he tapped out. Just a very nice win for Josh Barnett. We did have kind of a, a little funny moment uh, post-fight where Morrow accidentally called Frank Ken, as in Ken Shamrock, his brother, who he was in a full-fledged feud with uh, at that point. So, uh, And Frank Frank kind of got kind of quiet. He kind of chuckled, and, and then he, uh, you know, Morrow tried to make an excuse or kind of walk it back, and Frank's like, you're not getting out of that that easy. <laughs> and I, I was curious if Frank was actually upset with with it, with Morrow about that at all. Probably not, but uh, it did make for kind of an, an awkward moment. So Gus Johnson goes in there to interview Barnett after the fight, and Barnett grabs the mic from him and basically says, hey, Gus, I know you got to love you. I know you got a job to do, but these people, they want to hear from me. And uh, got a nice reaction from the crowd, and he cut super fiery baby face, baby face promo on the mic, uh, saying that at the end of the tournament he'd be standing on a pile of bodies with a pile of gold in his hands. So uh, that that got a nice reaction from Josh Barnett. He also wished everybody a happy Father's Day, which was the next day. So pretty cool. Uh, the official result was Josh Barnett defeated Brett Rogers via submission, come by way of arm triangle choke at 117 of the second round. Barnett would be back to take on Sergey Heritanov in the Grand Prix in a few months. While this would be it for Rogers and Strikeforce, Rogers uh, would not, as we, uh, I'm sorry, Rogers would 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 not be back as this would be all you know all she wrote there. And in September of that year, and this is interesting, so Rogers walked to the cage, and I believe it was his wife uh, that was accompanying him to the cage. In September of 2011, so just a few months after this, Rogers would plead guilty to domestic abuse for choking and punching his wife into an unconsciousness the same month as this fight. I don't know if it occurred before or after this fight. I'm, um, I don't know. I would assume that it happened afterwards uh, just because his wife didn't have any appear to have any marks on her or anything like that. Uh, and, she, you know, again, she was walking with her, her husband. And if he had you know abused her at that point, I, I don't know. Um, but it doesn't seem like it. Uh, but the, his their oldest daughter would also tell police that not only did he beat his wife, uh, but he also beat his kids and he got 60 days in jail plus probation and a fine, which I, I, it's offensive. I mean, the fact that he choked and beat his wife into unconsciousness, and this is 10 years ago, but choked and beat her, and he got 60 days and nights in jail plus probation and a fine. I, I mean, come on. That's, that's ridiculous. That's just, that's ridiculous. Uh, but uh, as far as his MMA career goes, he would continue to fight until 2015, after which he began having more brushes with the law. There were multiple accusations of groping men, against their will. Uh, there was a situation with a, at the library where he grabbed um, the, the genitals, I believe, of a, uh, somebody that, a male that worked for the library, uh, apparently was in the, in the elevator. And uh, when the man slapped his hand away, he didn't really say anything. And when the doors opened, he went out. And then uh, he was also got some, uh, while he was in jail, uh, he was also accused of, of groping a, a, a fellow cellmate. And I, I Unfortunately, I've not been able to find anything about what I tried to find, see if I can find anything about what, what's going on with him today. Uh, he ended his career at 17 and 10 in MMA. And so, again, that last fight was in 2015. I have no idea what's going on with him. I have no idea if he's still married or, you know, involved with his kids' lives or anything like that. But it seems like he, he was in a really bad place. And I hope that he's gotten whatever help he needs. And listeners, if any of you know what's going on with him, reach out to me at fill it inside the hexagon.com. Um, I, I'd love to I'd love to know what's going on with him. 
But that brings us to our main event, Alistair Overeem versus Fabricio Verdun. As mentioned, this was a rematch as Verdun had submitted Overeem in Pride back in 2006. And you got, I mean, at this, it was a, he was a dip. Both these guys were different fighters at that point. And Verdun was interviewed before the fight saying, and basically said that, you know, we're both different guys. Uh, we were now seeing Overeem at his beefiest. I mean, he was a very solid muscular 256 pounds. Uh, so he had bulked up a ton. That fight with Verdun, he was a glorified light heavyweight at that point, just beginning his run as a heavyweight. But at this point, he was full-fledged Uberim. Uh, I mean, he was swole in this one for sure. Uh, but Verdun seemed very, very confident that he'd be able to get the same result. He had also bulked up considerably as well. So, uh, But the Demolition Man, man, he wanted payback in this one. He even requested this fight. In his pre-fight interview, he was saying that he wanted he wanted this one. He wanted to get back at Verdun. Uh, uh, but Overeem was 34-11-1 coming in. He was the only fighter at the time to hold world titles in kickboxing and MMA, and I believe that is still the case. Uh, he had not tasted defeat since 2007. He'd gone unbeaten in 10 straight. The first fight in that winning streak had actually netted him the Strike Force Heavyweight Championship. Now, that belt would not be on the line in this fight, which is interesting because normally now when we see these Bellator uh, Grand Prix tournaments, normally the belt is on the line every time the champion competes. Uh, but not very active in Strike Force over the years due to a lack of viable heavyweight contenders. Uh, this was Overeem's chance to really, really establish himself as the man to beat in the heavyweight division in the in that promotion. And he had mentioned that getting some wins over these nice names would really get him set up. But he was really targeting a unification bout with Cain Velasquez. That's what he really, really wanted. Uh, Verdun was 14-4-1 coming in. He had not competed since submitting Fedor the previous year, so it was almost exactly a year before this. With that win, he had won five of his last six, which included a decision win over Bigfoot Silva in Strikeforce. Silva, again, was cage side. The thought that was that Silva was going to challenge the winner of this bout, and obviously being able to take on the champion in Alistair Overeem would go a long way towards, uh, you know, if he won that fight, man, he would obviously be the next contender for the heavyweight title. And then if he could get a bout with Verdun, that would give him a chance at, uh, at getting some, some revenge against a, a guy that had beaten him. All right. But once the, uh, the bell rang, not the most exciting fight. Overeem clearly had no desire to go to the mat with Verdun. The Brazilian would end up on the mat, sometimes shooting, sometimes, uh, sometimes he'd get pushed over. Uh, but, but, Alistair would never follow him down uh, early on in the fight. The crowd was booing Verdun extensively as he would lay down on the mat until the ref made him get up. And it was clear Overeem, they both had their, their strategies. Overeem wanted to keep things standing, which made sense. And Verdun wanted to keep things on the mat, which made sense. So uh, they both wanted the other guy to come to their world and neither, and the other guy didn't want to. Every time they'd clinch, every time Verdun would pull the champ down to the mat, Overeem would get out of it, stand back out. He, he did not want to deal with that. He was really interesting to watch them get frustrated at each other. Verdun would almost lay down after getting hit, trying to draw Overeem in. And in fact, at one point, Overeem slammed Verdun down hard, but pulled back but pulled back up and Verdun from his back literally put his hands together in prayer, asking the Dutchman to follow him down, pointing, come on, come on. And he's smiling and big cheesy grin and uh, just, but the crowd was not, not enjoying this at all. Finally, at the end of the round, Verdun captured over him in his guard, but it was too late to do anything with it. So 10, nine over him for sure. In the second round, Verdun got some nice strikes in before ending up on his back. This time, Overeem actually engaged on the mat for a second, but when he felt Verdun trying to tie him up, he remembered his strategy and stood back up. And we had more of that, more of the same of this in the round with the crowd booing lustily. Overeem would land a strike. 
Verdun would fall to his back. Overeem would stand up. The ref would make Verdun come back up too. And towards the end of the round, Overeem did engage on the mat, so that was noteworthy, but Verdun was too tired and too hurt really to do anything with it. He had eaten some shots on the feet, so another 10-9 round for Overeem. And then in the third round, Fabricio was clearly tired. His left eye was swelling. He did aggressively land some good strikes early on before shooting in, though Overeem ended up on top. But, I mean, man, this was a boring fight. I mean, it just there's just no other way to put it. On the feet, Verdun did, last, uh, did land some nice shots at times with his hands and knees. And I might have given Verdun the last round, but it wasn't enough. Overeem clearly won the fight, though neither fight – uh, neither fighter was really very impressive with this. So the official decision, Alistair Overeem defeated Fabricio Verdun via unanimous decision. Uh, interestingly, neither of these guys would compete in strike force again with both moving over to the UFC. So this was, for this card, you had a bunch of guys that we did not see again. I mean, the opening guys, uh, uh, Chad Griggs and Valentine Overeem, they were both done. Uh, Jeff Munson, he was done after this one. Uh, both the lights, lightweights would be back. Uh, but then Josh, uh, Josh Burnett versus Brett Rogers, Rogers would be done. So there's really only three fighters that would continue on uh, after this. Uh, I'm sorry, out of the heavyweights, there was only two that would continue on after this. You got four heavyweight fights, so eight fighters, and only two of them would continue on with the promotion after this. So that's uh, that's pretty crazy. Uh, that's that's yeah, that's you know, but that's the way things in the, went in the uh, the Zufa era. So very unfortunate that that's how it all went down. Uh, but Verdun, he would have a memorable run with the UFC after this. That would see him capture wins over Rodrigo Nogueira Marcant and Cain Velasquez and got him the interim UFC heavyweight championship. He is still competing today at 44 years old with the Professional Fighters League, the PFL, and he holds a record of 24-9-1 in MMA. Overeem would also have a good run inside the octagon, garnering wins over Brock Lesnar, Frank Mir, Junior Dos Santos, Andre Arlovsky, and another victory over Verdun. These two would actually lock up again. Uh, he left the UFC earlier this year in 2021, and he headed back to glory to compete in kickboxing, and that's where he's probably going to wrap up his career. But that was the fight card. Really kind of unremarkable. Um, not not a whole lot to really jump that really jumps out at you. Uh, there were no fighters that popped for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after this event, and unfortunately, no fighter payroll to discuss that was not released. Unsurprisingly, Masvidal versus Nunes was clearly the fight of the night. I mean, just such a great bout just to see the toughness of Nunes and Masvidal with the extremely intelligent strategy that he had, the counter striking, and he meant he, he said it after the bout that Nunes was just the right he was the right style for Nunes in that again he was using his his opponent's aggression against him. He was countering, he was picking his spots, and it really worked out well for him. Cormier probably had the best performance of the heavyweights. Uh, but outside of D.C., there really wasn't a whole lot else to this card. So kind of disappointing overall. Uh, but as far as the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix goes, we now had our final four as Barnett would was scheduled to battle Sergey Heritanov while Overeem was expected to take on Bigfoot Silva. Or would he? We both know, or we both know, we all know that that would not happen because I just mentioned that Overeem left after this bout. So uh, who was who is Bigfoot Silva going to take on in that bout? Uh, who was going to be matched up with who? Who were actually the final four going to be? I kind of gave you a, a little bit of a hint earlier on, uh, but we'll discuss that more on an upcoming episode. 
So looking ahead, I'm not really sure what our next episode is going to be quite yet. I've put out uh, some requests to fighters to come on. I haven't heard back anything yet, so I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do a fighter interview this week or if it'll be me and Josh uh, or me, me and somebody else breaking something down. We will see, and I will, of course, let you know. But after that, we're going to be covering Fedor versus Henderson, which is another heartbreaker for all the Fedor fans out there. We would also get Marlis Kunin defending her women's bantamweight belt against Misha Tate, as well as Paul Daly versus Tyron Woodley, Robbie Lawler versus Tim Kennedy, and Tarek Safadine versus Scott Smith. So that should be a good one. Looking forward to Josh being back and covering that with him. Uh, if you have not already, make sure that you follow us on social media. You can re- you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod, and you can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. And I would love to hear from you. And while you know this this episode is again shorter than most of our event episodes, I hope that you're you're enjoying what we're doing. Uh, it's you know this has been a fun run. So I'll just let me take a, a couple minutes and just kind of talk to you about the show a little bit. You know this is something that I do for fun. Uh, this isn't you know we, we we're not you know making money at this. It's really just something that. Uh, you know, a passion project for me and Josh put a lot of hours into our research and try to make this as professional as we possibly can. And, you know, we've had some really, really fun interviews in the archives. I really enjoyed talking with John Morgan from MMA Junkie, Tim Kennedy. If you haven't listened to my interview with Rich Chow, uh, the former Bellator and Strikeforce matchmaker, make sure you go back and check that out. I really enjoyed talking with with him. Josh had a good interview uh, with Kung Lee. I had a really fun interview with KJ Nunes, uh, the story of shine fights, uh, that, that debacle over in North Carolina that I was a part of, you definitely want to go back and listen to my interview with Ron Foster on that Jake Shields, uh, Scott Smith, uh, Ben Folks, the the celebrated MMA reporter, met Pat Militich. We've had Frank Shamrock on a couple times. Bobaloo Sobral, Frank Trigg, Trevor Prangley, uh, gorgeous George Garcia, Joe Riggs, jo, uh, uh, jo, uh, uh, sorry George Santiago. Uh, there's just some really great interviews. Gilbert Melendez and of course Scott Coker, the man that started it all. So make sure if you haven't already, go back and check those out. They're just this is just a labor of love. And again, we've really enjoyed going through all of these episodes and we, you know, we still got a bunch more, but we're actually, uh, we're, we're actually not going to have a ton left. I mean, it's, it's November. We've still got plenty more months to go. We're actually scheduled to end in the month of April of 2022. Uh, that will, that will be when we have gotten through all of the, um, all of the various interviews and all the various ep- uh, events and, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, at, at this point we're supposed to end it at, at the, the end of March, beginning of April it just kind of depends uh, on you know how much time we take off and we'll probably take off a, a week or two during the holidays, but we'll see about that. But yeah, I, I really appreciate you. your all your support. I really appreciate you tuning in and checking things out. And again, if you want to hear something different or if you've got a suggestion, you want to put me in touch with a fighter or somebody that had something to do with strike force. I am all ears on that you can reach me again at fill it inside the hexagon.com but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sense that i hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. 
from candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on.